As we are in this gap between our last series that we were doing here at Cross Connection Church called The Disciplines of a Disciple and the next series that we're going to be starting next week as we begin to lead up to Christmas, we had this little couple week gap. And during this period of time, I wanted to talk about a topic that has been something that's been on my heart for a while now as it relates to Christians living in challenging times like we are living in right now at this moment. And it is a, a focus, if you will, on the answer to the question that was posed by a, an apologist back in the late 1970s, early 1980s, a man by the name of Francis Schaeffer. And he posed the question, how shall we then live? And so we're trying to talk about that here for us as Christians living at this period in church history. How shall we then live? And I have to give a little bit of a warning before we get into the scriptures today. You could maybe even call this a bit of a trigger warning. This message potentially is going to make some people a little bit upset or angry. So I guess I'm warning you right now, if you did not come to the scriptures with us today prepared to be confronted by the scriptures, not by me, but really by the Lord in his word, then uh, it's possible you might want to, you know, click off and watch something else. Actually, don't do that. So I know you're not supposed to tell people to click off and watch something else. You should stick with us. But I do want to give you a little bit of a warning. You need to be prepared for what we're going to be talking about today. I am going to say some things that possibly might kind of ruffle your feathers, shall we say, maybe tick you off a little bit, but it may not actually be me that is saying these things that might frustrate you. It may actually be the Lord, the Lord speaking through his word. And that's exactly what we need to be prepared for whenever we open the scriptures, because the word of God is living and powerful and it is sharper than any two-edged sword. And the author of the book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter four, he says that the word of God cuts deep and it divides between joint and marrow, soul and spirit. It is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And so I am going to spend some time this morning showing you some things in the scriptures that you may not have noticed before or Perhaps I'm rather going to help you to see something in a passage that may in fact be a familiar passage to you. If you've been around the Bible or around a Christian church for any length of time, you've probably come across this passage of scripture. And I wanna help you to see this passage in a way, and I would even say the right way, that you may not have noticed before. You're going to see an old passage in a new light, in a fresh way. And it may in fact challenge you as you start to see exactly what it is that is being said in this passage of scripture. So um, I just wanna throw that out there so that you can recognize as we start to get into this and just kind of ready your heart and your mind because the Lord may have a word for us that might be one of those things that we, we need to wrestle with a little bit. So we're gonna begin with a passage that I mentioned last week in my message out of Philippians chapter three. I'm gonna begin reading at verse 12. You can follow along with me if you'd like. Philippians chapter three, verse 12, Paul says there, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us as many as are mature have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. 
Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. Paul writes there in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, Not as though I have already attained or am perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. We really have to stop right there. We, we can't really go much further. And as we stop right there at those words in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, we see that Jesus wants to save me and you to the uttermost. He wants to save us to the uttermost. In another passage of scripture in the New Testament, the same author, the Apostle Paul, he writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May God sanctify you and me completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who will also do it. God has planned an end unto which he desires to bring you and bring me. And Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, he's saying, I'm not there yet. I, I haven't attained. I haven't been perfected. But I am pressing on to lay hold of that very thing for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me for. So Paul was always working to forget the things that were in the past and to pursue the very thing unto which God saved him in that he, he was pursuing it in such a way that he might lay hold of it, that he might apprehend it. And then he throws in these words in chapter 3 of Philippians, verse 15. He says, Therefore, let us as many as are mature have this mind, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that you have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. And then, brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. If you are mature or you are maturing in Christ, then you, Paul says, will have this mindset. You will increasingly begin to have a shift in the way that you perceive and see things about your life in this world as a follower of Jesus. You will realize that you have not arrived. You are not perfect. You will begin to recognize that Christ has something that he is seeking to do or to accomplish in and through your life. And you will be working with him to lay hold of that for which he has laid hold of you. That means that Jesus saved you for a purpose. And as you begin to follow him and walk with him, you will begin to discover what that purpose is. And your desire will begin to be to lay hold of the very thing for which he saved you, the thing that he laid hold of you for. And Paul says, if you don't yet have this mindset, then God will reveal even this to you. He says, you're going to get there. Eventually, you're going to get to the point. And, and I think Paul could say that God will reveal even this to you because of what he had said previously in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where he says, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So Paul says, even if you're not quite there yet, you haven't come to this place of maturity or growing in maturity, where you discover that this is what God wants to do in your life, you're going to get there. So nevertheless, wherever you are along the way, Paul says, let us, Christians, if you're a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus, you've put your trust in him, let us be like-minded in this pursuit. He says, follow my example and take note of those who are following this same example. Those who walk like this, they are a good pattern for you to pattern your life after. Now, at this point, 
you probably are not bothered. I gave you a little trigger warning earlier saying that this passage is going to be something that might bother you, but we're going to get there. You're going to see how some of the things that Paul says in this passage, they're very challenging to us as God wants to sanctify and perfect and transform us. Our Father in heaven, he wants to see me and he wants to see you become mature. If you're a parent, that's the same thing that you want for your children. So we are children of God by grace through faith. He has adopted us into his family and he wants us to mature, to grow up. He's a loving father. That's what he wants. Same thing you want for your children. And Jesus desires to save us completely. And when I talk about saving us completely, I'm saying he wants to justify us, which is what Jesus does when we trust in him. He deals with the punishment of our sin. And he ultimately is going to glorify us when he brings us into his presence and he deals with the presence of sin and we are no longer sinful. But now in the midst of this, God wants to bring about a sanctifying work in us. So Jesus desires to save us completely, body, soul, and spirit. And I don't care if you've been a Christian for 30, 40, 50 years, you have not attained perfection in Jesus Christ yet. We have not attained perfect maturity. We've not apprehended that. But Paul, when he wrote this to the Philippian church many years ago, he had been walking with the Lord for a period of time, quite a period of time. And he's an apostle. He's a church planter. He's a pastor. He's a faithful man writing scripture inspired by the spirit of God. And yet he had not yet apprehended. He was not perfect. And so he was trying to lay hold of the very thing for which Christ Jesus had laid hold of him for. So we are pressing on that we may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus saved us. God is working in us to desire and to do those things that are pleasing to him. And we hopefully are working out our salvation as we're walking along with him in this walk. And along the way, we have examples and patterns that we ought to follow. People who are faithful followers of God, who have been walking with the Lord in a honorable and righteous way. And Paul says there in Philippians chapter 3 verses 15 through 17 that we need to take note of those people and we need to follow after them so that we know how we ought to live. And so Paul says that we should, we should pursue those things that are right. And, and he was an individual because he was walking with the Lord faithfully. He could say to other people, imitate me, follow my example. So it's very important if you're a follower of Jesus to take careful note of people who are mentioned in the scriptures or maybe other brothers and sisters in the church who are walking in a way that is honorable to God and pleasing to the Lord, faithful to him. Take note of how they walk and to follow their example. So Paul says that we should note those people who walk in a manner that is imitatable and we should imitate them. And he says that we should imitate him. But what other examples do we have from the Lord about how we ought to work? Well, between the verses that I just read in Philippians chapter 3 verses 12 through 17 and the passage that we looked at last week in Philippians chapter 1, if you were here, Paul is going to give a series of examples. If you were here last week, I, I mentioned these verses in Philippians 1.27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So last week we looked at Philippians 1.27, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. And this week, just a few minutes ago, I talked about Philippians chapter 3, uh, verses 12 through 17, where Paul says, note those who walk and they have, they're good examples. And in between those passages, Philippians 1.27 and Philippians 3.12, Paul gives a series of examples of four individuals and how they walked with the Lord 
And these are individuals that are worthy of your imitation. You should note those who so walk. So the, one of the examples that Paul gives is in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 11. Paul uses himself as an example. And he says, this is an example of one of the ways that you should walk. Just before that, in Philippians chapter 2, verse verses 25 through 30, he gives the example of a believer from the city of Philippi, a man whose name was Epaphroditus. And just prior to the example of Epaphroditus, he gives the example of Timothy in Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 24. So each of these three individuals, Epaphroditus, Timothy, and Paul, they were great examples of how you ought to follow the Lord. These were people that the Christians at the city of Philippi, they could relate to. They knew who Epaphroditus was. They knew who Timothy was. They knew who Paul was. And so Paul's saying, keep track of these people and the way that they live and imitate them as you walk with the Lord. But Paul gives one more very important example. In addition to himself and Timothy and Epaphroditus, he gives what I would say is the chief example, the one that we're going to spend our time this morning considering. And the example that perhaps is better than any other in answering the question, how shall we then live? That's been the focus of this series last week and this week, answering the question, how shall we then live? And Timothy, Epaphroditus, and Paul, they were examples of how we should live as Christians living in challenging times. But there's one more example that Paul gives in Philippians chapter 2 that is an essentially important example to answer the question, how shall we then live? But before we consider it, I want to reiterate that this individual and the example that this individual is going to give us in Philippians chapter 2, it's going to be challenging for us. I have been challenged by this passage for a very long time, especially over the last year. I spent a lot of time last year studying through this particular passage. And since that time, I have been thinking a lot about this passage frequently. I've been meditating upon it. And those thoughts and those meditations are in large part what has led me to talking about the topics of the disciplines of a disciple, which was the series we did just before this, and now talking about this answer to this question, how shall we then live? So I also, want to add that the passage that we're going to look at, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, if you've been a churchgoer, then it's probably likely that you have come across this passage of scripture in your own reading or you've heard it taught on before. It's a familiar passage of scripture. It's an important passage of scripture. But one of the problems with these verses that we're going to look at in Philippians chapter 2 is that this passage is one where people can get distracted by the theological implications of what this passage is saying, and they miss the practical point of why Paul is saying what he's saying here in this passage. There are very important truths about Jesus, because Jesus is the example we're going to look at in this passage. There are very important truths about Jesus in this passage that give us insight into early church Christology. How did the early church understand who Jesus was and what his life and ministry were all about? Well, this passage in Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 5 specifically and going through verse 11, presents us with what would be called a very high Christology. But that high Christology of this passage, which was very likely a hymn that Paul and the people at Philippi understood 2,000 years ago, it's probably not original to Paul. He's not the one who probably originally wrote the lyrics that we find in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. 
But this gives us some great insight to how the early church understood who Jesus was and what he came to do. So there's great theology in this passage, but that's not the point of why Paul was bringing up these well-known words to the people at the church in Philippi. The reason Paul includes these words in Philippians chapter 2 was to provide an example or perhaps to say the example of how we ought to live in this world, the example that we ought to emulate and follow. So in answering the question, how shall we then live? This passage is, I would say, essential. And to understand it completely, I think it's important to read it all in context. So we're going to jump back. I'm going to reread Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. We're going to read through this entire section of scripture. And I hope that you'll follow along with me as we read in Philippians 1, verse 27 and on. There we read this. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each one esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others." Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he, Jesus, humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Now, after reading all of those verses, there's a part of me that almost feels like it needs no further explanation because those words are powerful. And hopefully if you were following along, you kind of get the flow of everything that's going on there and you kind of get the sense of what it is that Paul is teaching and saying. So there is a part of me that almost feels like I don't need to explain this any further. Of course, you know me well enough to know that I can't keep from giving you a much further explanation about this. But unfortunately, without an explanation, there, there is the possibility. We sometimes have the tendency of missing the point of this passage because we focus on what it says about Jesus, his nature, kind of a Christology about Jesus, and we fail to recognize what it is that Paul is teaching when he is bringing up this, this hymn about Jesus Christ, that it talks about being in the form of God. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Those words in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, those were probably a song that the early church sang, and they, they knew those words. They were like an early creed of the church or early hymn of the church. But why is Paul using this that the Philippians probably already knew? 
He's not, he's not using this to teach us some amazing thing about the nature of Jesus, even though it does teach us some great things about the nature of Jesus. He is using this to tell us something about how we ought to live. The, the primary point of this passage, the chief thing that Paul is trying to bring out of these verses is that Jesus is the perfect example of how we ought to be perfected. Jesus is the perfect example of how we ought to be perfected. And when I say how we ought to be perfected, you need to understand that I'm not talking about a sinless perfection. I'm talking about something different than that. The word that Paul uses in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, when he writes, not as though I have already attained or am already perfected, it is a word that speaks about maturity. It's not talking about sinlessness. It's not talking about perfection in the sense that you are so perfectly righteous that you never sin. It's talking about you growing to maturity. In fact, the word that is the root for the word perfected there is the Greek word telos. And it focuses on what is the purpose or the goal or the end of a thing. So what is the goal that God wants to bring us unto? Well, it's the goal of bringing us unto maturity. So Paul wants us to come unto maturity. And Jesus is the perfect example of what that looks like. So what does maturity look like? What is the end unto which Christ wants us to come unto? What's his purpose and his goal in this life through sanctification? He's already justified you. If you've trusted in Jesus, he's dealt with the punishment, the penalty of your sin. He's already promised that he's going to bring us into his presence in eternity and we're going to be glorified. He's going to transform this lowly body that will be conformed to his glorious body by the same working that was at work in Jesus when he rose from the dead. So that's going to happen. But right now, in this life as a Christian, what is it that God wants to do in your life? He wants to bring you unto maturity. And what does that maturity look like? Well, he says it looks like this. Have this mindset in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is the mindset, this is the focus that we ought to have. And this is where this passage gets really challenging for us. The perfect example of Christ and the perfection of maturity unto which he is calling us, it's a very high bar that Jesus is calling us to. It is a calling unto which we have been called that we will never in this life fully apprehend will never fully attain to what it is that God is wanting to bring us unto, never fully achieve it. But even so, Paul says, this is what we should be pursuing. He says in Philippians chapter three, I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. So before I unpack a bit of the example that we have in Christ here in this passage, I think it is really important for me to say again, as I alluded to last week, maturity in Christ, is not measured by your Bible knowledge, even though Bible knowledge is very important. In fact, Paul in Philippians chapter one, he prays for the Christians at Philippi that they would grow more and more in their knowledge of the Lord. So Bible knowledge is important, but your maturity as a Christian is not measured by your Bible knowledge. Your maturity as a Christian is not measured by your spiritual giftedness. Again, spiritual gifts are important, but just because a person seems to have spiritual gifts doesn't mean that they are mature. Your maturity in Christ is not measured by how long you've been a Christian, even though hopefully you have matured more the longer that you've walked with Christ. Though that's not always the case. There are some people who have been Christians for 20 or 30 years and they're not very mature in Christ. 
So maturity in Christ is not measured by Bible knowledge. It's not measured by spiritual giftedness. It's not measured by how long you've been a Christian. It's not measured by how many days or nights out of the week you go to church. It's not measured by how many Bible studies you attend or how many Bible studies you teach. Your maturity in Jesus is not measured by how many verses you can quote or how big your Bible is or how many Christian stickers you have on your car or how much you listen to K-Love on the radio or how much money you give to the church, etc., etc., etc. Your Bible, or I'm sorry, your maturity in Jesus is not based on any of those things. The measure of maturity in Christ is how much you measure up to the stature of Christ. In other words, Christ's likeness is the measure of maturity. Jesus, he is the plumb line. I keep bringing this out every single week. So Jesus is the plumb line. And the measure of maturity as a Christian is how much we align with the nature of Jesus. Look at what Paul said in his letter to the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 4. I've read from this last week. And Jesus gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists and pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, note this, to a perfect man, there's that word perfect again, to a mature Christian, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So what is the the plumb line, what is the measurement, if you will, of maturity? It's the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is what God wants to measure our lives by, that we align our lives to see how well they align up with Jesus and his nature and his character. So God has given us the church body. He's given us church leaders to equip us, to raise us up until we come to maturity, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Jesus Christ. And like I said, that is a very high bar. And so Paul writes to the church at Philippi, Philippians 1, I'm sorry, Philippians 2 verse 1, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. From everything that we can tell, both from the scriptures and also from early church history, the church that was gathered in the city of Philippi, they were a great church, kind of like Cross Connection Church. But like every church, and this included, this church in Philippi had its issues. The people who made up the church at Philippi, they had just as much flesh as any other Christians. They were not some super spiritual group of believers no more so than you, no more so than me. And they were vulnerable to the same kind of weaknesses in their flesh, just as I'm vulnerable and you are vulnerable. The people that made up the church at Philippi, they could be selfish. They could be self-absorbed and conceited. They could be haughty. All of those things, when they are allowed to remain in our lives, they cause division. And that's exactly what was happening, I believe, at the church in Philippi. The underlying tone of this letter makes it very, very clear that the church in Philippi, even though they were a great church, even though they were a gathering of believers who were helpful in supporting the Apostle Paul during his ministry 2,000 years ago, even though they were a great gathering of people whom Paul loved, they still had their issues. And one of the issues that seems to be apparent in the book of Philippians is that the people at Philippi, they were divided. 
And that becomes clear when you come to chapter four, verse two, and there in Philippians chapter two or chapter four, verse two, Paul speaks directly to two individuals. They appear to be two ladies in the church. And he says, I implore Eudia and I implore Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. So it seems like there was a conflict or there was a division between these two individuals. And I'm sure you've noticed when there's a conflict between two of your friends who are a part of the church, then what generally happens when there's a conflict? Well, you kind of have people kind of siding up with this group or siding up with this group. And then you know, the conflict, it moves from just two individuals to all the friends of those two individuals. So it seems like the church in Philippi 2000 years ago, they were having a problem of division. And Paul is writing to them to try to address this issue of their flesh, that they would be joined together, that they would be of one mind, that they'd be of one accord, that they'd have the same love. There we saw it in Philippians chapter two, verses one through four, that they would have no selfish ambition or conceit, but they'd walk in humility, lowliness of mind, esteeming others better than themselves. So if you have experienced Christ's love, if God has done a work in your life by his love and by his grace, as you have trusted in him, and if you have been brought into fellowship with his spirit within the church, and you have been a recipient of his compassion and his mercy, how shall we then live? That's what Paul's addressing in these verses. He, he says it very clearly in chapter two, verse one. If there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of spirit, if any affection and mercy, if you've experienced all of those things, how should you live? Well, he goes on and he explains how he wants them to live. The result should be that we are like-minded, that we have the same love, that we are united together in one accord, that there's harmony within the body, that we are of one mind and that we work so that nothing is done by selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility of mind, we esteem other people better than ourselves, that we are not looking out only for our own interests, but also for the interests of others. Again, this is the plumb line. This is what I measure my life by. Am I seeking to walk as Jesus was with humility? Am I seeking to walk with unity with my brothers and sisters? Am I seeking to endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace? Or am I out of alignment? God's word is the plumb line here that I have to put my life up to. The teaching of the scripture is clear. Where do I line up? Am I in alignment or am I out of alignment? And as he gives this, you know, aligning verse here in Philippians chapter two, verses one through four, then he gives us the, the example, the example by which we are to be measured. The measuring line in this passage is the measuring line of Jesus Christ. And when I am compared to Jesus, there's no way that I can fake it. We can put on a show of Bible knowledge. We can pretend like we're really smart about the Bible. We can fake spiritual gifts. We can attend dozens of Bible studies every single week, but you can't fake Christ-likeness. You can't fake humility. You can't fake selflessness, putting others above yourself. You might be able to do it for a very short period of time, but you can't do it for any considerable length of time. You just can't fake these things. So Paul says that he wants us to grow in this like-mindedness. And then he gives us the first example. Remember, I said there's four examples. There the, there's the example of Paul in chapter three. At the end of chapter two, you have the example of Epaphroditus. You have the example of Timothy. But the first and most important example that Jesus or that Paul gives us here in this passage, beginning in Philippians chapter two, verse five, 
is the example of Jesus. And Paul writes this, and these verses may be familiar to you, but they're so important. Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So Paul says in Philippians chapter three that we're to note those who are good examples and follow their pattern. He gives us the example of himself, the example of Epaphroditus, the example of Timothy, but here we have the example of Christ. This is what humility, selflessness, putting others above yourself, this is what it should look like. Jesus was enjoying all the wonders of divinity in paradise outside of the fallenness of this broken world in eternity in a place that we could only call heaven. That, that's what we think of when we think of this world where God is outside of this world, we think of heaven. So Jesus was in eternity. He was in paradise and Jesus did not consider that place or that position to be something to cling to or to hold on to. If he was looking out for himself and his own interests only, then he would have stayed there and he would have held on to that position in that place, but he didn't do that. Instead, he, of his own free will, of his own volition, he made himself of no reputation and he emptied himself of his place and his position for a, a time. And he took, it says, the scriptures say that he took on the form of a servant. And the word servant there is very clearly the form of slave. God became a man. And he didn't become a man in a high and privileged place of power and royalty. He made himself a servant, the lowliest of all servants. And he humbled himself. Even after being in a place of being a servant, he humbles himself further to the point of dying dying on the cross at the hands of sinful people. And why? Why did Jesus do this? Because he was looking not out for his own interests. He was not looking to his own rights or his own position, but he was looking out for the interests of others, for your interests and for my interests, because we were in the position of dead in trespasses and sins, and we could not do anything to fix that problem. And so Jesus humbled himself to deal with all of our sin and all of our problem. So what does maturity in Christ look like? What does Christ likeness look like? Well, it is humble, not haughty. It is selfless, not self-interested. It does not cling to its own way. It does not cling to its own interests, its own reputation. And I know this will bother some people, but it does not cling to its own rights. Jesus had to write to stay on the throne in heaven for eternity. The same throne that Isaiah had a vision of in Isaiah 6, where he saw the Lord high and lifted up, seated upon a throne. Jesus could have stayed there, but if he had stayed there, then we would have been lost for eternity. And so he stepped aside from that position and that place he stepped down into this world and he set aside for a moment his rights, his privileges, his, his own reputation, his own interests, and he steps down into our world. And he takes on the form of a sinful human being. He wasn't sinful. He had no sin in himself, but he stepped down into the muck and the mire of this world to rescue and save us. And he did that because he was looking out not only for his own interests, but the interests of others. And so looking at all that, I have to look at the plumb line that is Jesus. 
Jesus, who was perfect and holy and righteous and the King of kings and Lord of lords, seated on a throne in heaven, he steps down into this world to show the way to life, to be the way to life. And he is this perfect example of submission and obedience and humility. And I have to look at my life in comparison to that. He's the perfect plumb line. And do I line up with that? Am I those things? Am I humble? Am I selfless? Am I interested in the interests of others over my own interests? And when I ask those questions, I have to say, no, I'm totally out of alignment. And, you know, just as Paul says, not as though I have attained or am already perfected. But Paul says, I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us as many are as mature have this mind, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. Brethren, join in following my example. Join in following not only Paul's example, but the example of Jesus. Now, is it easy to do this? Is it easy to follow the mindset of Jesus? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Is that easy? No. There is nothing about what God calls us to do in following Jesus that is easy. That's why it is called working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But God is working in me to will and to do those things that are pleasing to him. And here's the question. What is the result when I follow Christ in this way? What was the result when Jesus humbled himself in this way? Well, Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. The path to glory and exaltation is the path and way of the cross. Jesus went to the cross, humbled himself, became obedient to the point of the death, of death even the death of the cross. He stepped aside from his position, his place there in heaven, stepped down into the realm of humanity and died on the cross for us. And, and why did he do that? So that he could rescue you and he could rescue me. That is the path of the cross. And what is the result of that? Well, he was exalted. So the path to glory and exaltation is the path and way of the cross. Jesus even taught this in Luke's gospel, chapter 9, verse 23. There Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, the same will save it. Again, there is nothing about this that we find in this passage that is easy. But especially at this moment in church history that we find ourselves living through, the world that we live in needs to see Christ manifested in and through his people in this way. So with all of this, I want to finish our time today with another passage of scripture, not from the Apostle Paul, but from the Apostle Peter, where he, he says very much the same thing that Paul has been saying here in Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 27 through Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. This entire section of scripture Paul is driving home this important truth here. And Peter says very much the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 3. He says this in verse 8. Finally, all of you be of one mind, 
having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Do you want to inherit a blessing from the Lord? Do you love life and want to see good days? Do you want the eyes of the Lord to be upon you and his ears to be open to your prayers? I'm assuming that the answer to all of those questions is yes. And if the answer to all those questions is yes, then how shall we then live? Well, Peter says, be of one mind, have compassion for one another, love one another as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous. Do not seek retribution. Bless those that revile you. Refrain your tongue from speaking deceitfully or speaking with evil. Turn away from what is evil. Seek peace and pursue it. These are the things that God calls to us to do, that we would be of one mind. This is the consistent teaching of the scriptures. And this is what it looks like to follow the example of Jesus. So how shall we then live? as we are in this space between being justified and ultimately being glorified. How shall we live as we are in the midst of being sanctified, as we are in the midst of a world that needs to see a manifestation of Christ in and through his people? How should we live? We should be of one mind. We should be united together. We should have compassion for one another. We should be endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We should be walking worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that our conduct would be in such a way that brings glory and honor to God. We should be working out our own salvation with fear and trembling as it is God who is working in us to will and to do his good pleasure. So Jesus in Philippians chapter two, verses five through 11, that's not just a great statement about who Jesus is, though it does tell us some amazing things about who Jesus is, that he is fully God and came to the world to save sinners. It tells us all of that but that's not the point of it. The whole point of those words is to give you and give me an example of how we ought to live, not with selfishness, not with conceit, but in lowliness of mind, esteeming other people better than himself. And so may God give us the grace to do just that. Father God, I do come before you right now and ask that you would work in my life and in the lives of my brothers and sisters, that you would bring about a transformation in us that Lord, you would work in us by your spirit, that we would have your humility and your grace and your peace and your compassion, your tender heartedness, heartedness working in and through us as we interact with other people in our neighborhood and on the school campus we're at, the office building we're working in or on the construction site, wherever we are, Lord, manifest your grace and your goodness in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. <music>